Hey, Ooh. Simon. <laughs> hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, doing? Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, what's up, Simon? Hello. Simon. How you doing? Hey. Hello. Hello. Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. This is Simon Brooks, and I am the host of Conversations with Storytellers. Hi, my name is Simon Brooks and I'm the host of Conversations with Storytellers, a podcast of wisdom, folk and fairy tales from our elders, a meeting with professional storytellers. I decided to travel around the country when I could to interview some of the elders in the community of traditional storytelling. Each storyteller shares their thoughts on our profession and gems of wisdom and sometimes a story or two. I'm glad you're here. I do want to thank Chris Jed, a good friend of mine who did the amazing music. I hope you like the sound. This episode features Odds Bodkin. Odds is a storyteller whose work, when I heard it, gave me permission to do a lot of things I did as a kid. Make noises, sound effects, character voices and tell stories. Firstly, writing poems whilst tending bar in New York City, Odds then telling stories to children in Central Park and linking those stories to nature in the park, to performing on world stages, sharing some of the best retellings of myths and legends, folk and fairy tales there are. He is the consummate professional who winds music in and out of his performance, giving an in-depth, multi-sensory experience that few others can deliver. Odds and I met on and off in passing, and then when I moved to New London, New Hampshire, we became good friends. We often talk about all sorts of things. With his dog, Samsung, who you'll hear occasionally panting, that's not me. But this, this is the story of the mythic maker Odds Bodkin from his own mouth. Enjoy. I, I can say that it's a delight to have you here in my home once again, Simon. <laughs> Thank you very much. On this very cold morning. It is chilly. And if, and if uh, you hear a, a ringing in the background, those are the wind chimes on the front porch. I did wind ma- did Making wind their noise when the breeze <laughs> kicks up. Yeah. So as Oz just said, we are sitting in Oz Bodkin's home. The fire in the wood-burning stove is beautiful. There's a Christmas tree set up in there. The little alcove in the front room, and um, the old Celtic harps in in the corner with a with a twelve string guitar. I'm very happy to be here. Again. I'm happy to see you again. <laughs> so, where did, where did you grow up? What was it like being little Odds Bodkin? <laughs> I grew up in Alexandria, Virginia, about fifteen miles from Washington D.C. Moved there when we were three from New York. And it was weird because I was one of those little boys who spontaneously made strange, loud noises just from sheer joy of being alive. Uh, I can still remember walking down the, you know, the, high, the, the road there in our neighborhood and just making big, high-pitched, weird noises. Huh. And, and uh, so I've been deranged for a long time. <laughs> So you said you were in New York. Which part of New York were you in before that? I was born in New York, in Manhattan. Oh, and on the island? Uh, yeah. That's, yeah. That's cool. And then, um, and then my parents, when I was three, uh, left, uh, Man- well, they left New York. We were in Long Island for a little bit, and then moved to Virginia. I grew up in Virginia. Did you like it there? I 
had a fabulous childhood. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Were, you know, the, were the storytellers in your family? Uh, my father was a storyteller. My mother was a concert pianist. And so she ended up being a music teacher in Alexandria, where we lived. My dad had an extraordinary memory and vocabulary, and he used to tell me stories when I was a little boy. And he would sometimes make them up. Oh, that's cool. Uh, he was an engineer. And there's the, the, almost more the surroundings, though. We were one of the first neighborhoods uh, in in a part of Virginia that had yet to grow. And so we were surrounded by farmland and forests and a stream filled with living things. And we little children, from the age of three, I was out and about with my friends. We'd leave in the morning, come back at dark. You know, we were yeah. completely free-range children. There was no danger anywhere. And we spent all our time catching minnows and frogs and snapping turtles and eels and uh, collecting fossils, building tree forts and climbing giant tulip trees and swinging the tops back and forth. And we just had a great time being little kids. Yeah. Uh, Did you have siblings? I have a sister. You do? I still have her. Good. Yes. That's nice to hear. Yes. That's nice to hear. Yeah, the woods is like is a fertile place for the imagination. I think forests and and streams and rivers. It just there's magic in those places that that feeds into that. I think. I think so. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> your father was a storyteller, and you said that sometimes he made stories up. Do you remember any of those stories? He told me the song of Roland once. Oh, wow. But I don't have specific memories of them any longer, if I ever did. I just have memories of the experience right. of, from memory, oh, and like the last of the Mohicans. Oh, he, would, he, would, he would just paraphrase books that he had read when he was little. Wow. That's pretty, <laughs> to that's tell me these cool. stories. That's oh, really cool. Yeah. So when did you when did you decide that you wanted to be a storyteller? Because you were when you were you were folk musician to start with, is that right? Actually, not. Oh. No. I was living in Manhattan. I was about twenty eight, and I'd been going to the Young Foundation up uh, on Lexington Avenue reading about depth psychology, I'd had a great many interesting experiences with a great many strange and wondrous people while I lived in New York. Uh, and uh, d just uh, became fascinated with uh, the unconscious mind and the power of archetypes. I have a degree in cognitive psychology. I just have a BA. Uh, but was always interested in the workings of memory, the mind... Um, semantic spaces you know I used to do studies in college where you would uh, how, how quickly in milliseconds can you go from sparrow to turkey as opposed from sparrow to finch oh. or from sparrow to penguin and so what we were doing is we were trying to map the millisecond speeds of people's responses as their brains went 
with various kinds of images, and it was called Research into Semantic Space. And uh, trying to tease apart whether it really took an infinitely longer, smaller, but longer amount of time to go from penguin to earthworm than from penguin to puffin, for instance. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. And you were a duke, right? Mm-hmm. Fancy guy. <laughs> so how did the story... So you... How did the storytelling take off then? <clears throat> well, I had tended bar in New York for the first few years and would talk to people and always kept a little notepad next to me. And I would just begin to write strange snippets of, of poetry and things like that, mm-hmm. just reflecting on the human condition. And then developed, when I finally quit being a bartender, I I fell in with a very strange crew up on Madison Avenue called the Central Park Historical Society, Uh which was made up of the black sheep of the Otis Elevator family, Fortune, and a, a, a ballerina from New Zealand. And these two were crazy and wonderful people who ran a sort of semi illegitimate uh, non-profit in order to try to mooch money from their rich friends. <laughs> I, being an innocent and a dreamer, walked in, just walked into their uh, second floor office one day, which was also their dwelling, and said, I can make you legitimate. I know a lot about the history of Central Park. Why don't you let me offer programs to school children to take them about the park, show them the architectural features, as well as do field walks for children to teach them all about nature. Because all of that, being a little kid in Virginia, gave me a kind of an intimacy with all the various plants and all the various tiny insects. I mean, in the upper part of Central Park in the stream there, there are crayfish, there are tiny freshwater clams, there are all kinds of things you'd never dream would be in Central Park in New York City, right near where the junkies' needles are at the old Jeez. fortress, you know. Yeah. And so I devised a set of programs, which they sponsored, but I had to, you know, earn the money from. Right. And it was all I kept all the money, and I went around to these very fancy schools: the Spence School, the Ethical Culture School, schools like that 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 border Central Park where very wealthy people sent their children to school. And I said, uh, come with me, and I will uh, take you into the park, and I will give you a, a, a really interesting educational experience. I had a great little dog, Ophelia. The children loved her so much. So we would just meet these groups of kids in the conservatory gardens up at the north end mm-hmm. near Harlem, and then I would take them for a walk. And then I developed a big set of 16 by 20 inch blow up black and white images of the hydrologic cycle of what it looked like to look into the cell tiers of a leaf from the side of, of spiral galaxies of all kinds of things that gave a sort of a micro to macro look at nature 
told them about the Fibonacci sequence, how you could find it in the whorls of every flower that they looked at. I taught them what they could safely nibble and taste as wild edibles. All this sort of information that I would turn into a really fun experience for kids. So I struck myself up a little business. And one day I decided I would tell a Native American story called Theft of Fire. And I had a little alto recorder with me. And I told the kids, as part of the experience, this very simple little story. Mm -hmm. And they listened with a kind of attention that I had never experienced before. None of them was distracted. All of them were listening. All of them were watching. All of them I could see were imaging. And it struck me that this storytelling business... But the story, activity of storytelling was doing something in their cognitions that I had never seen before. Since then, you know, I've made a study of it, and it's just called entrainment, uh, where if you can get children to truly be immersed in imaginative imagery, they have almost total recall of the story material. I was just up uh, in Scarborough, Maine, spent uh, two days at a lovely school and did a program called Fairy Folks and Old Oaks. Uh And what we do is I told them two fairy tales, the the 300 kids in each show, the third, fourth, fifth graders, told them uh, two of my favorite story tales, The Tale of the Kittens and The Little Shepherd. And then... We spent the rest of the residency in their media center where the teachers and the and the that were astounded at how the kids remembered every single detail. I gave them handouts. It's all about how fairy tales are structured in inside and there are clusters of three, you know, there's a family at first. The hero, be it a girl or a boy, leaves the family, there is an adventure, magical helpers are encountered, they give magical gifts, which end up saving you later, and all the various structural elements of the classic fairy tale have to have a happy ending. <laughs> all that. Yeah, right. And so we analyzed this with the children. Um and uh it it was really, really fun. So it gave gave them much the same thing as screenwriters' courses give movie writers the secret, you know, inner design of a good movie that you pretty well must follow in order to entertain people. Right. Uh, That's the Joseph Jacobs um, mythological journey, right? Yeah, Joseph Campbell. Campbell. Campbell's Hero's Journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. You know... um, And I'm a, I was a big fan of Joseph Campbell's work. And I've read all of his books. You don't find movies that are really effective that don't have this archetypal structure in them. Yeah. Or, or you know, long-winded TV shows. And after telling them that story, I realized that all this music that I've been playing all my life, mm-hmm. I had been playing guitar since I was 12, mm-hmm. and in college bought a 12-string guitar, my first 12-string guitar, which opened up an entire world in that I discovered that I didn't have to keep it tuned to concert tuning, like a folk guitar, you know, C, G, E, and F chords and all that, Mm -hmm. uh, but could create various open tunings that allowed me to, to create original 
music that was good for the background of stories, with all unique fingerings and 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 very unique sounds. And I had just played endlessly in the stairwell uh, in my dormitory in college, just playing twelve string good. guitar. Yeah, it was the best acoustics. <laughs> Sit in the stairwell and play. Yeah. And I had all this music that wasn't the kind of music that you could sing to. Now, it's never a... Uh, I've, I've written a few songs f for stories in the past. I've written a few songs and had a phase of doing that, but mostly it was just incidental music that that, that would thematically uh, bring out feelings that I could play as I spoke. And that sort of launched things. Because so I said, I could take all this music and put it underneath a story as if it were a movie. Wow. And and I can do all these weird voices. Because it was that weird little kid making those noises. Yeah, I, was, when, I was the same weird little kid. <laughs> I think the storytellers are all cut from the same basic muslin. <laughs> you could be right. You could be right. And so, uh, <laughs> and so that that's that's how I started. Wow. You know? So it, um, I know you don't tell personal stories, although you did tell one. I think it was at Sharing the Fire. That was a really good story, but you you don't like to do that. You like to do the folk stories. What do you think is important about the folk stories? Why should we be telling them? Why should kids hear these stories or adults even? Well, first of all, they've been time tested. None of these old stories be they folk tales, fairy tales, or myths, would even be extant at this point in history if they hadn't had a kind of a psychical energy that they carry mm -hmm. that is nourishing to people. They would have been long forgotten. For my money, uh, it's more important to tell a story that I've put my own stamp upon, but nevertheless is time-tested than to share, you know, my foibles and my heartaches and, you know, uh, my neuroses, if I have any, and <laughs> and, and, and anything else. Yeah. Um, you know, I've almost been killed a great many times, but I don't ever talk about that. Mm. I'm, but, but some people, I'm sure, feel that they must. Uh, no, it's more important for me to tell the kinds of stories that... Uh, that when people are 30 years old and they come to my shows, they can say, I saw you when I was a little kid and I still remember the experience and I still remember the story uh, and it's stuck with me all this time and here's my little boy, <laughs> you know, and I want to get some of your recordings so yeah. that uh, I can uh, share them with him. That's cool. Yeah. And I just exercised this, this skill set with uh, a, a production that was just invented called Danica the Rose. Mm -hmm. Danica the Rose, is an, we debuted in Peterborough, New Hampshire, back in early October. Uh, Jasmina McNeil, who's a wonderful young singer, uh, Sarah Schaefer, who's also a young singer, and, uh, and then uh, Emily Phelps, who's the accompanist. And two and a half years ago, Jasmina came to me and she's a classical singer, she sings all over the place uh, asking for a, a fairy tale that 
that could set Dvorak's 23 Moravian duet. Yeah, so, I was, so she came to me, and she had been listening to my stories a long time, <coughs> and, and, and asked me to write an original fairy tale. Antonin Dvorak was a great uh, Czech composer, one of my favorite classical composers. Oh, really? oh yeah, the, you know, from the New World, or there was one of those beautiful symphonies ever written. Oh, everything that he's ever written is beautiful and melodic. And he's a typical classical composer from the mid 1800s. And being a fan of his, and not being familiar with these Moravian duets, he wrote for two women's voices. He wrote about 23 duets based on wonderful sort of bucolic themes of love and loss. I go to war, my mother won't let me marry you. There's a bird on top of the building. Uh, let's go, you know, to the vineyard and meet and kiss. You know, all these <laughs> kinds of various little tiny love songs and laments and whatnot. All with some unbelievably beautiful, beautiful melodies. And so she gave me the 23... Uh, duets and w with translations of their lyrics in English. And I listened to them, and I meditated, and I sat down, and I realized that even though none of these old folk songs was connected to the next one purposely, by rearranging them, mm -hmm. I could begin to tease out a story, ah. sort of hidden, latent, inside the, the, the fragments of story in the lyrics. And so I wrote uh, a, a fairy tale. It's an hour and ten minutes long wow. in performance, and it's called Danica the Rose. And she and I worked on the story for a year and a half, back and forth, two different versions, a children's version, an adult version. I mean, we've book, been booked for the, the second performance that thus far will be at the Philadelphia Chamber Music Society to perform it. That's our next gig. It's ways wow. away, but it's it's been booked again, uh, and it'll be booked a lot. I have to, you know, put up a whole page uh, at my site about it. Mm -hmm. I'm still trying to just recover from the falls, uh, commissioned works, and so we performed it in Peterborough. Uh -huh. Had a stuffed house. They had to bring chairs from upstairs to get all the people in there. Oh, wow. They gave us a standing ovation at the end. So this was a house concert, then? No, this was in Bass Hall in oh, Peterborough. And they still had to bring chairs? That's they so had to bring cool. chairs from the upstairs. We were very pleased. I know, it was a sold-out sold show. So I, I want to go back to your childhood in Virginia. Was there, a, was there somebody in your life who was a, uh, a big influence on you? Well, not really. You mean... Uh, uh, so... Um, I had great teachers. Yeah. I had wonderful teachers. Uh, I went to a fabulous high school uh -huh. called Hayfield High School. We were the first graduating class. Uh, had fantastic drama teacher, Mr. James, who was just amazing. And... Uh, but I think as I look back on my childhood, it was just mostly the f complete freedom that we had. I mean, you know, I mean, it's just like the little rascals. Yeah. Nobody ever told us what to do. We made our own boats. We made our own bows and arrows. We yeah. 
had a wonderful old abandoned uh, antebellum house nearby. We were forbidden to go near that we went to every day <laughs> with wild horses running around in the woods that used oh, to chase funny. us. We had a tree, a tulip tree, which is a tulip poplar that is at least, was at least 90 feet high and two tall uh, trunks came out of a single trunk at the bottom. Okay. So by the time you climbed, you get one little kid, it was just like a ladder. It was the most amazing tree to climb. We could get all the way to the very top. You know, my friend Andy and I, or any of us, we, we had a gang of about six little kids. And we rode our bikes, and we did this. And the only way you could get up into this tree, though, was on the end of a rope. You had a piece of wood. You had to throw it over the first lower limb and hoist yourself up. Because it was impossible to get up to the first level otherwise. Right. So this was our tree exclusively, because the other kids couldn't figure out how to do this. And we could pelt them with <laughs> objects and spit on them and stuff if we wanted. <laughs> but anyway, we could get to the very top of the tree. Reprobate. And, and go back. You could swing it. You could get the arc swinging uh -huh. and go back and forth like this. Uh -huh. And we would get these treetops swinging oh. past each other like a 30-foot arc, the skinny little top of the tree. And a tulip tree is beautiful. Because it's filled with these wonderful, strange, big leaves that look like a mitten and flowers that are orange and green that are tulips. So they're big tulips. They're not tulips, but they're but they, they're tulip-like flowers. Mm -hmm. And at certain times of the year, you could be in the top of this tree just surrounded by vivid colors. You could see all the way to the Masonic Temple in Alexandria because this tree towered above all the other trees wow. in the forest. Could look all around, see the neighborhood. Uh, That's really and we, cool. Yeah, you know, we, and we did all these things that uh, were, 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 were dangerous. This was... Imagine if, if nowadays... If parents allow their children to walk down to the corner mm -hmm. market, cops will accuse them of bad parenting. Mm -hmm. Child family services will come in and tear your kids from your home mm -hmm. because you are, quote, a neglectful parent. And that's probably, I don't know, a good thing nowadays because after the 1960s, there's certain forces of wildness and craziness were loosed in America that uh, made it suddenly dangerous right. for little children. Yeah, it was the it, same we, in the UK as we well. We were never in any danger. Yeah. Everybody would do nothing but look out for you. We could walk into any neighborhood and knock on the door, and there would be this nice mom. And she'd say, are you lost? And say yes, we are. Oh, do you want a cookie? Yeah. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> yeah, the little kids with sticks, yeah. you know, and muddy feet. And some nice lady would give us a cookie and say, "Do you want me to call your mother?" We say, "No, but where are we?" And you know, we just wandered. Yeah, uh, and no one ever heard us. So, uh, yeah, it's a different I, world we live in now. Isn't it? It's a different world we live in now. And I think part of just having, feeling the freedom to pursue a, a profession as strange as storytelling mm -hmm. is born still of a lot of that freedom that I 
grew up uh, experiencing and you know, fearlessness. Yeah, yeah. So you talked about your Dvorak project. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is like, what do you think is your most rewarding work or most unexpected work today? And that is, would that fall into that category, or is there something else that? Oh gosh. You've done all sorts of different things. I mean, recently you just did this this um, commission for the, um, the tr- New Hampshire Trails, right? The um, yeah, it's called the Old Man Speaks, and I debuted it. I've performed it only once, well, twice, but only once officially. Up up, up in the White Mountains on the, at the foot of Mount Washington for the AMC's uh, White Mountain Trail Crew. Centennial celebration, and it was a commissioned work. It was commissioned by a wonderful man named Robert White, who two years ago came to me and asked me if I would uh, create a story for this event that's going to take place in two years. Wants the history of the White Mountains. Uh, we went back and forth on the the fictional setting, and I did a lot of research. Spoke to members of the trail crew met with them interviewed people read books yeah uh, wrote and wrote and then we edited the the piece and i composed original musical themes on the harp and the guitar and the six string guitar and the 12 string guitar and then performed it <laughs> you know yeah. that, that's all that's taken place with it thus far but we do have a good recording of it you but do I, oh yes good uh, was that at the the event that Aiden and I saw, or was no? That was the preliminary. One. Right, right, right. No, the 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 actual performance you of it. That too, didn't you? No, I I didn't. Oh, okay. I no. you were yeah, yeah. Well, you've heard that story, yeah, right? It's a great story. Um, you know, very different from anything else I've ever done. Like nineteen little episodes, and it's all it flies back and forth in time, and yeah, and whatnot. Uh, no, the uh, the official version was done under a big tent at the Mount Washington Auto Road field mm-hmm. that's down there in the valley. Yeah. And they had their their big event set up there. That's really cool. Yeah. Do you like these jobs that pop out of nowhere? Like that one and the Dvorak? Do they stretch you, do you think? These two did. Yeah. These two consumed me. Yeah. Uh, it's nice to have the uh, Danica the Rose piece finished, because now we've done all the work. Uh, Jasmina has a score that we've. She's taken little snippets of the of, of the interstitial music between uh, my readings, and we have intros and outros over the music. It's almost like a piece of musical theater mm-hmm. and then uh, the, she and uh, and Sarah are just powerful and uh, f- magical singers together she's a mezzo-soprano and Sarah Schaefer's a soprano and so li- listening to them in this performance was thrilling we have a re- we've got a recording of it too I've just been so busy <laughs> I haven't had time to do anything with these right. things yet and I'm going to be doing two Beowulfs. I've got a... I know, I saw that. Yeah. I need to come and see that. Oh, yeah, like one is for the 
the Cambridge Boat Club. I have a, two of them back-to-back, the 11th and 12th of January. But then the other is for Grendel's Den. I'm yeah. going into my fourth season doing shows down at Grendel's Den. That's so neat. Oh, it's really fun. Yeah. That, that, it's that, that what a fun is. audience oh, that God. is. That's um, such a good story. Um, I love it. The way that you do that. So, but how long have you been telling Beowulf for? Uh, six years, maybe. Yeah? Yeah. What was the first epic that you did? Was that The Odyssey? The Odyssey. And that came out of... I know the background story to this. <laughs> it's funny, because, yes. Yeah, it's a great story, because Marion Cross School, right? Mm-hmm. They put an ad out, because the guy... What was his name? He was... It's David Millstone. David Millstone. So he's actually... He was, he's still around. He's still around. Does he still... Do square square dancing or contra? As far as I've heard, I haven't spoken with him in twenty five years, but yeah. I understand he's still out there doing his thing. Because he was a remarkable teacher, Marion Cross, social studies teacher. Mm-hmm. And he put this whole program together of the Odyssey, and then he put an advert in the paper. Is that right? That's right. And said, "Well, no, not in the paper. He sent. He got a list of storytellers in New Hampshire. Okay, that were there weren't very many of us back then, but I don't know who else got it, but." Uh, he said, I need a storyteller who can tell an episode or two from the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote him back and said, oh, I'm sorry, I can tell the whole thing. But you couldn't, did you? <laughs> I couldn't. <laughs> Sneaky. <laughs> he gave me the job, you know, and you know, I had three months in which to create the first version of it. Uh, and then went back to the school, I guess, four or five years in a row to tell it. And, and it got candle- better and better. Yeah. And you set candles up, from what I've heard. I would have a candelabrum burning there. It was my portable shamanic campfire. And we'd sit in the darkened room, and it would all be in the candlelight. It was a very fascinating and ancient-feeling kind of way to experience storytelling. But then, uh, you know, teachers uh, schools started to become litigious <laughs> they said Mr. Bodkin you can't have an open flame in our school in the in the middle of our gymnasium <laughs> with a wooden floor and, <laughs> and I said well what's going to happen it's going to fall over and then the floor is not flammable but eventually the fire marshals got the better of me and I abandoned my old candelabrum and uh, you know miss it still but you still tell that story the Odyssey oh yes yeah, yeah. I'll be doing it at Grendel's Den. Uh, I'm doing a few of them. I've got a few of them booked. Uh, it's just fun. I don't really. I don't tell the whole thing that often unless people well, want long, to invite right? me for three days. It takes right. three days. Uh, a 45-minute show, two of them a day for three days to tell the total four hours of it. Uh, you still doing your Gilgamesh? Uh, not not as often as I'd like to do it, but mm-hmm. I do do it. Yeah. 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 Um, so you you do the Odyssey, you do Samson. Samson, which is a really good story. No, I do Hercules. Sorry, Samson and Delilah. You do Hercules. Yeah, I have uh, the Hercules, the legendary bully, is what I call it, or mm-hmm. Hercules in Hell. Mm-hmm. I was just invited. I just performed it for. A very interesting crew of uh, you know ex-military and CIA people down in Virginia wow. at a private gathering. Let me go let the pooch out for a second, uh, which was fascinating. 
And they loved it. We had a great time. And that's it was just like three, four weeks ago, maybe. Now, as far as the epics go, there's this long version of the myth of Hercules. Mm-hmm. There is uh, the Odyssey. The Harper and the King. I have a version of David and Goliath. Right. That's really good. Yeah. No one has ever asked me to perform that, except once. Really? Really, yeah. I mean, do you perform it? Do you take it out? Or is it only on request? Because that, that must have taken a lot of work to create. That's a lot of work. Yeah. Um, no. Uh, oh, and then there's also uh, The Hidden Grail, Sir Percival and the Fisher King. Mm-hmm. That's a great story as well. Uh, it was nice. Uh, uh, young couple who's getting married wants to use the opening lines of it or, or maybe it's the Dame Ragnell uh, love tis a weed lest it's an oak true love to the heart's earth grapples slow while false love's promise quick to poke itself upward and spread its show seldom finds the height time can bestow instead it bursts its heated bloom and starts to die though it seems to grow in passing clouds of sweet perfume (laughs) the nice young couple you know wanted to uh, put that in in their wedding vows so i said yeah sure that's really cool (laughs) so when you when you're looking for stories what does the story have to have for you or does it just speak to you? On so what 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 makes you pick a story? I don't know. The word juice comes to mind, but it's not a very elegant way to describe <laughs> archetypal meaning, depth, humor, opportunities to do characters, things like that. Yeah. Uh, when you pick a story, what, what, what's the process that you go through to, to learn a story? Well, one of my favorite stories that I've told it for university audiences and, uh, and for adult audiences is uh, Judistra at Heaven's Gate, which is a tale from, from the Mahabharata. Oh. And it's this beautiful story. Play you some of the music for it. So I dreamt up this uh, sort of imitation sitar, like guitar music. Why do you do, why do you do an imitation sitar when you have one? <laughs> because you don't have to. I haven't it. figured out. <laughs> I, I can't sit in a lotus position. I'm a little too stiff for that, you know. Um, <laughs> went on to tell a story which I'm not going to include here because of the the length of it and then we got back to the podcast here we are so what how do you feed yourself artistically how do you keep the battery charged is it is it the whiskey and the fire (laughs) (laughs) I don't know there's enough of a variety of projects that 
I, I, I can hardly keep up now. Uh, this, these last two years, we're doing these commission pieces, the White Mountains piece and the Danica the Rose piece. Just uh, had me on on the ropes, especially the White Mountain yeah. piece, because the Danica piece I wrote a story, but didn't score or do any musical work. But the White Mountains piece, there was a lot of music, and so that uh, kept me going. Developing new new musical techniques keeps me going. Yeah, and you've also written you've also written the Madges. The, the, the Madge's Daughter The Water Mage's Daughter Water Mage's Daughter which is really good that took me 25 years to write that. holy cow yeah yeah and you've done a couple of picture books and aren't you working on another book right now or is or am I I spent 10 years uh, writing adult novels and I have yet to sell a single one um, and uh, had a literary agent for a while and got tired of working with her um and I'm just, I don't know if I'm cut out to be a novelist. I think novelists have a certain way of doing things that uh, I just don't possess. But I gave it a good shot, and I have these really good stories. You know, because you're very keyed into this kind of stuff, planet Earth. Or I get that impression, anyway. Yeah, well, I was out in Boulder, I a year, a year ago, maybe, uh, at the Boulder Climate Conference, and told... Um, Fall of the Titans, the the Greek myth of Gaia. It's another epic that I've gotten into my basket of tricks, and it's it's so amazing that the the Titans were, were the parents of Zeus and Hera and all the Greek gods, right. and they were the first Earth formers. Gaia is the planet. She's the original goddess. Then she starts having babies. She has the mountains. She has the sea. She has the atmosphere. She then hooks up with the atmosphere, and uh, they start having babies. And they have these twelve perfect Titan babies. Tethys, you know, the tightness of the streams. You've got, um, uh, you've got uh, Phoebe, who's the tightness of, of prophecy. A whole, a whole host of them, but they're basically they're all involved in Oceanus, who brings salt to the sea. They're all these; they represent various ecological systems. Hmm. And so, in this interpretation of uh, of the Gaia story, the overthrow of the Titans by Zeus—it's just like human beings overthrowing the natural right. Earth and messing it up. Yeah. And so, it's this gigantic metaphor for the study of, uh, of climate problems. And, you know, I developed this years ago and did workshops for people who came down from the National Center for Atmospheric Research in my workshops to try to learn to communicate uh, the science that's frightening everybody so badly through storytelling because they've had 30 years to scare this, this civilization into slowing down and absolutely nothing has helped. No. To the point at which we passed so many tipping points that uh, we're in for a pretty wild ride, planet-wide, yeah. and uh, all manner of dire things are approaching. And so that was an attempt to use storytelling. It was called, and I have a version of it at my website called Story Science, where I would tell this story to kids 
and then have this big 25 minute movie that I made that has all the physics involved in how climate change operates. Mm. Uh, it's a whole movie and I just, I, I tell the story and then, you know, I switch to my projector and, I, and up, up comes the movie and then I live narrate the movie as I go through all these various interesting uh, images and videos that talk about the planetary system all the way from the giant sheath that's 40,000 miles out in space in the direction of the sun it's our magnetic field and it's the first big protector of the planet right and the solar winds come in and they hit it and they stream right around the planet and it's created by our magnetic field which is created by the grist between the the core of the iron core of the planet which is the size of the moon and then all the other gooey stuff, the stone, all grinding against itself, it's, it creates the magnetic field, just like electricity is created by magnets spinning next to each other. Only it, this creates the magnetic field that's so huge, it protects us from the solar winds. And if it weren't there, the ultraviolet radiation would cook us all. We'd, uh, there would be no life on the planet. Uh, right now, the... Uh, the, you know, and it has sort of doesn't. It, the magnetic field is shifting at the moment, which is done before. Which it's done before. Which is as long before. as it's still there, then mm -hmm. we're okay. So, and then you know, I go into the atmosphere, talk about the various layers of the atmosphere, all the way down to the troposphere. Tropo is Greek for change, and that's the layer that's you know about a mile mile high or so, maybe five miles at the most in places. Um, where weather takes place, where clouds move, okay. storms move, and then above that you're up into the stratosphere, which is very different, only has these really thin, thin, high clouds, and then you get up into the ionosphere and the exosphere and all the way up to about 100 miles out, in which case this, when you look at it from the side, this thin, thin coating of gas on the side of the planet is all we've got, and we're trapped under it. And it's like a giant closed system. Uh, and we're cooking it, you know. And So anyway, so I've got this thing called story science that I also do on occasion. And people have asked for it, and I do it at schools for middle schoolers yeah. you know, on occasion. Uh, that's, wow, that's crazy. Yeah. If there was a piece of advice that you... If you were talking to a young person that wanted to be a folk storyteller, what piece of advice would you give them? You mean, they wanted to make a profession of it? Yeah, they wanted to do this for a career. I would tell them that uh, they need to find some way that allows them to be unique in what they do. And also to appreciate, if they want to be it's telling folk and fairy tales and myths, appreciate why these stories are still around and to, no matter what culture they come from, to honor them completely. Uh, you can step easily into the, the, you know, sort of PC realm these days of cultural appropriation where people will holler at you. If you're not German, you can't tell the German folktale. If you're not Australian, you can't do this or not, can't do that, you know, which negates the sort of collective wisdom of all the stories of all the peoples. Mm -hmm. and there, but there are 
plenty of people who uh, are quite militant and adamant about that these days. I find it to be an utterly bogus position, small-minded, but that's just my opinion. Uh, you know, because the end game of that is that the categories gories grow narrower and narrower to the point at which no one can tell any story except one that comes from your direct ethnic heritage. Right. So that's just ridiculous. Yeah. And anyone over in this country has probably three or four ethnic heritages anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'd, I'd, I'd tell them to uh, make sure that they can offer not just the stories, but educational, genuinely genuine educational experiences that come along with the stories. That you can tell a story and then and, and, and walk away from it, or you can tell a story and then go back and with kids explore it. Right. Develop materials, learning materials. And that that has helped uh, me over the years uh, yeah, continue that. to stay in business. Yeah. I love telling stories, I mean, working with kids to tell their stories or their versions of stories. It's a, it's a lot of fun yeah. to see what kids can pull out the bag. And some of it is amazing. Am amazing? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I'll do uh, a sit-down with a bunch of kids, a class of them, and we'll do a creative story-making session where I'll tell them, okay, I'm looking for an idea. Any idea in the universe will work. It can be the fact that it's cloudy today. It can be the fact that you might have a pebble stuck in the grooves of your tennis shoe that you got on the way to school today. It might be. It can be anything in the world, and we'll grow a story from it. Um, and so, some kid will say, uh, "A pink dog," you know. So I say, "Yeah, you know what? Once a pink dog was walking down the sidewalk. What was this pink dog's name?" Uh, Henrietta, Henrietta the Pink Dog, you know, awesome. before you know it, just before you know it, you know, Henrietta the Pink Dog will be having adventures and going places, doing all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so, I've, yeah, I'd like doing this with kids. And then so the, uh, I'll animate the story as it grows with the 12-string guitar. And, you know, and then every once in a while, some kid will say something, you know, like, Batman ate it. And I'll say, no Batman, all original characters, no cartoons, no frozen characters, no Disney. You have to make up something yourself. So I'll edit th that stuff out. Right. And then uh, and they sort of end up squeezing the, their imaginations into a, a completely new narrative. And then I'll leave that with the teacher and say, uh, this is now this story now belongs to your students. Have them draw pictures, rewrite it, perfect it. You know, and, uh, and it helps because kids don't have much opportunity to imagine uh, nowadays. Yeah, I don't think they have much opportunity to vocalize either. They're not allowed to express themselves as much. Yeah, yeah. Because they're so inward with devices. And this goes all the way back to the studying of cognitive psychology that I did, is that there are a couple of things that are happening. Firstly, because entertainment comes at at children at such a rapid pace these days. The pacing of everything is so hot, especially in video games coming out of their devices. And it's so exciting and so uh, stimulating for them with such an adrenaline kick coming along 
that when they close their devices, they look at the real world around them and they're bored by it. Mm-hmm. It's not moving quickly enough. It's not leaping forward to entertain them. And so they become entertainment addicts, little little ones, uh, who uh, are prone to depression because the only way they can avoid it is to continue to be stimulated. And so there's a, a kind of a strange a grinding wheel that's working upon kids these days where uh, that and with the social media aspect is causing all this angst and woe. The devices are really, really uh, destructive in that way. Mm-hmm. They have their good points, but the the manipulable child is uh, so easily swept into a whole new set of norms that have never been expected of human beings before. Right. It's never been expected that 100,000 people will like you. <laughs> never. Or, or, hit the, you get or hitting the button. <laughs> it, it, you know, or yeah. that you have all these friends who aren't friends. It's mm-hmm. not within the natural human behavioral repertoire to be able to emotionally respond yeah. to such things. And so... Uh, you know, woe betide humanity if we run, if electricity suddenly ceases or these networks go down. Yeah. You know, you're going to have people jumping off the tops of buildings because they're suddenly disconnected from their entertainment sources. Right. And that's, so, you know, it goes back to uh, long ago I wanted to become a storyteller because I was an ecologist because it's one of the activities that produces no ash Oh, not common, yeah. There's no, you know, effluent yeah. from being a storyteller. Yeah. Uh, um, which, uh, other than hot air, which... Uh, <laughs> I was thinking which, of it. I didn't want to say it, but I was thinking of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, well, a couple of last questions. Yeah, sure. What's your favorite breakfast? My favorite breakfast, oh, though I cannot eat... Or will not eat it any longer. Because uh, I packed on some poundage last year. So I've sworn off uh, carbohydrates. But my favorite breakfast by far would be a big stack of pancakes with butter and maple syrup, bacon, sausages, hash browns, and some scrambled eggs with some hot sauce available. Wow. <laughs> That's a pretty substantial breakfast. <laughs> Eat this and die. <laughs> yes. Why that, do you ask that question? Have, have that on the license even, That's such a bizarre <laughs> question. I know. Oh, all right, so where would your favorite place be to eat that <laughs> breakfast? Like anywhere in the world. Where would you go? Uh, if uh, you could. Uh, on a porch high in the mountains. Mm-hmm. On a or, or, or at the side of a lake in the mountains. Uh, it, you know. With whom? Oh, with Mill. Yeah. Uh, or if, or, or just by myself. Yeah. That would do too. Because in this in this scenario, I'd be paying more attention to the breakfast than I would be to my <laughs> wife. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> She would like that. 
Um, What's Mill's favorite breakfast? He likes yogurt with fruit and nuts. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think her favorite place would be? She likes the outdoors as well. When we were first uh, uh, married, we used to lead river float trips down the Delaware Water Gap and take people on float trips. Really? And we would cook in the out-of-doors, this big place called Depew Island, which is in the middle of the Delaware River. And this is in the Water Gap Park area, so it's really very beautiful. At least it was when we were there. And we would, you know, we... How long ago was this? What year are you talking about? 1981, 82, around there. And the trees had never been logged, so the trees on this island create a cathedral-like effect there, so Mm. huge and tall above you. And she would probably like to, uh, you know, pull up a canoe and build a campfire and pull out food and, you know, sit on the canoes and eat there and go wandering. Well, I think on that note, we shall end the conversation that we have had today. And it's been absolutely wonderful spending this time with you, just shooting the breeze and picking your brain. Can I make you lunch? That'll be great. Yeah, I'll just turn this off and we'll have lunch. All right, we will. (laughs) Thanks, Lars. You're welcome, Simon. We covered a lot of ground in this interview and touched on a few things that Odds is passionate about. I hope you enjoyed hanging about with Odds as much as I did and do. Thanks, Odds. Really appreciate it. If you have not heard Odds before... You can find a ton of his material, if not all of it, on his website, oddsbodkin.net. That's O-D-D-S-B-O-D-K-I-N.net. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, be sure to check out other episodes. And if you think I should interview a certain folk and fairy tale, myths and legends storyteller, shoot me an email. You can find me and my own work on Facebook, Simon Brooks Storyteller, on my website, simonbrooksstoryteller.com, and on Instagram, Simon M. for Michael Brooks, Simon M. Brooks. Diamond Scree? Yep, that's me, the English fella and storyteller. You can help keep this podcast alive by becoming one of my Patreons and paying anything from a dollar for an episode that you enjoyed to a regular monthly subscription. In return, you get extras, early release, and exclusive content. And that's at www dot patreon.com forward slash simon brooks if you cannot do that then help me out by doing something you can do i would love it if you were to leave a review on stitcher apple podcast Podbeam, wherever you find this episode it helps not just me but it helps others find this podcast and know what they're getting into thanks again for being here with me i know there are a lot of other places that you could be and i appreciate it until next time be healthy Be happy and share the stories you love. Cheers. Simon out.